this is the hour of terror that I promised you. <laughs> the title is, Have No Identity But Love. So we're going to talk about relinquishing our identity. This is not as terrifying as it may seem because the ego is an appearance and the ego believes totally in appearances. Now the ego divides itself into a body, an ego body, and an ego mind which seem to war with each other. So your ego mind will actually tell your thing, tell your tell you things that are not good for your ego body. For example, when we we get sick and we start to recover from the illness, the ego mind will step in and say, well, you're feeling a little bit better and there are all these things that you have to do. You better start acting as if you're completely well. And so we will then uh, undertake a flurry of activity in the name of some sort of spiritual something, we're not sure what, that we should be completely well. And this is often what causes these relapses as we recover from an illness. Instead of just resting and being quiet and being gentle, we get caught up in this conflict. So as we said so often here, as we're using the word ego at the dispensable church, it simply means the part of our mind that is conflicted, or the belief that we have two wills on almost any subject you can bring up, that there are two things that we want out of everything. There are two things that we want out of this meeting here. At least two. And also, as we've said so often, the relinquishing of this conflict or this ego identity is merely in the beginning doing something that throws our weight in the direction of our true will. That pulls the rug out from under the ego. Because the notion that we have two wills and that these are perfectly balanced in conflict is of course absurd. And so to look at the conflict shows us where our true interest lies. We don't have to analyze this, we just see it. We see what would make us happy. We see what's making us unhappy. And then we begin doing something, anything, to throw our weight toward the will of our heart instead of the will of our irritation or the will of our jealousy or the will of our revenge. And then we see we are not conflicted. And every time we do that, this shabby picture that we have of ourselves, this, this dark image that we carry around that we think we are, begins to lessen. So in the beginning we merely lighten our sleep wherever we can lighten our sleep. We bring in light and we sleep in a less deep, profound, hallucinatory manner. Just as we sleep more lightly as we begin to, as morning begins to come. 
So what is our identity? It always takes a specific form, and this form changes sometimes second by second, at least minute by minute. Certainly, hour by hour, we have a new identity. We're a sex, an age, a profession, a body type. Gail and I have a friend who is now quite a successful writer, but in the beginning she, she was uh, an actress. And she stopped being an actress when she went to an interview and she saw a whole room of versions of herself. She has red hair and big brown eyes and every woman there had brown eyes and red hair. Some were a little taller, some a little shorter and so forth. And, that, and she never went back to another interview. That's, that's an identification. I am a body. And my identity lies in my separateness. How different is my body? So nothing could be more disconcerting to our present sense of identity, which is constantly changing, than to see someone else that's exactly alike. If, for example, at that moment we were identifying with a body and we saw another version of ourselves. This is why we are prepared to dislike anyone that we have been told we're just like. Oh, you're just like so-and-so. I sure want you to meet them. <laughs> There's no way we're going to like that person. We're going to be sitting there scanning every difference that we can list to ourselves, you see. I, I love flying on planes, and you meet the most wonderful people. They're always sitting right next to you. Um, and I... I the last week I did a lot of flying and so I've got a lot of different identities that sat next to me. There was a couple who were senior citizens. That's how they identified themselves and they, they told me all how the whole world opens up for you when you're a senior citizen. All these discounts you can get, how they let you in the movie for less, you know. And they were very happy about this. They'd just become senior citizens and urged me to become one as soon as possible. <laughs> Jerry Jampolsky and I are going to give a talk at a Methodist church in Dallas very shortly to a thousand singles. <laughs> this is a group, a support group, and it has a thousand members. Now think what your identity would be if you were sitting in the group. Now you are a single. Just notice how you would have to walk through the day if you said, I am a single. I am a senior citizen. Do you see how we look, how everything would have to be looked at in those terms? We are always something. This is unavoidable. Now, the media, it's not, it isn't as if we don't have enough categories. We're going to go into a, several of them here. But the media tries to make up even additional ones. For example, when uh, Doubleday published my first book with them, they wrote an ad, um, and they put it in the Dallas newspaper, 
And it was something like this. Um, Farmer Realtor writes <laughs> philosophical musings in the tradition of Rod McEwen for young adults. <laughs> now, no one thinks of himself as a young adult. And another category I love is young marrieds. Does anyone think of themselves as a young married? And so what, what often we see in the media, they're trying to sort of latch hold of your identity and say, if you are a such and such, therefore you will want this product. We dress our bodies and we dress our conversation to exhibit what we think is our primary identity. And this will change. This is unavoidable. Everything that I'm saying is unavoidable on ego level. As long as we have an ego, we're going to be doing this. We'll just be doing it in a different way from someone else. And so if we identify with our race, we may wear ethnic clothes because this is our primary identity. We are such and such a race. If we identify with our religion, uh, we might uh, dress in any number of ways. Uh, as a Sikh, as a priest, as however, as uh, we've recently in Santa Fe, we've seen a group uh, called the Disciples of Christ. They they dressed in a particular way. This is obviously their primary identification is with their religion. Uh, there's even uh, an identification with a musical preference. Now, of course, always, uh, no matter what the identification is, on an ego level, the ego will always say, "Well, it's much more than that." It's much more than an appearance. It has great depth. But the primary identification is something like, for example, I remember in the 60s when the Beatles first came out, I was uh, a guidance counselor at a school in Michigan, and all the kids, most of them, began dressing like the Beatles. Now, of course, there was a philosophy that went along with it, but it was a primarily a, a musical identification to other people. Today we see uh, reggae and punk and a number of other things. People will dress punk. They will dress reggae. Of course, the ego says there's more to it than that. And there are a series of appearances that go along with it. Once again, this is unavoidable. We are all doing this in some way. Uh, we can identify with the shape of our body. And so you can be a, uh, a stud or a vamp uh, or a mother. Have you seen the T-shirts, the arrow, mother? That's a perfectly, you know, that's, that's one of many identifications. We identify with our body. Therefore, we are a body and we dress the body a certain way. And we want people to react to us. When, I, when the Gail and I were in Berkeley... I was really happy. We, 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 were, we were in uh, Texas, we were in Austin, and we were looking around the world for a place that was opposite Texas. <laughs> and we came up with two possibilities. One was American Samoa. <laughs> and the other one was uh, Haight-Ashbury. Uh, 
Now, by the time we got to Haight-Ashbury, it had changed. It was no longer the Love Children and so forth, and the whole thing had moved over to Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. So we got there right at the time of that move. And I had read that this was uh, based in, that the, the dress and, and lifestyle was based in large degree on Thoreau. And Thoreau, of course, you just wore what you had and you lived where you were and you ate what was around you and that kind of thing. And I, so I was real happy. This wasn't going to cost any money <laughs> to do that. Not so. There is, the ego has a way of dressing to show that you don't care about dressing. <laughs> so the ego is always choosing. When we go to a, a closet full of clothes, we pick out certain clothes and we are dressing in our identity. This cannot be avoided and it would be, be silly for anyone to try to, to do it. All you're going to do is just switch to another one. So I found that I couldn't wear my, the shirts and the and the slacks and so forth that I had, uh, I didn't have blue-blue jeans. And I found you had to have blue-blue jeans. Uh, the denim couldn't be any other color. And so I was uh, told by my friends that I had to go to the Army-Navy store or I had to go someplace and there were certain things I could wear. I could wear khaki or I could wear blue-blue jeans. And then there was the hair. How are you going to wear your hair? Well, this indicated whether or not you were for or against drugs. <laughs> And so the term was skinheads and long hairs. If you had long hair, then this meant a certain thing. So this is, of course, what the, uh, what the ego does. And uh, it is not always apparent, and we should remember this, that we cannot always tell what the person is doing. And often they're doing it unconsciously, what it is they're putting forward. And as I say, it makes no difference since we're all doing it. And there's not one that's better or worse than another does it really matter whether we identify with a political position in our dress or we identify with a uh, religious position? Or What difference does it make what we identify with in what we wear? But it is good to remind ourselves that we don't know what is going on. And we just see it and it's a source of amusement as to how we all do this. Um, but to give you an example of how you can be mistaken, uh, I remember the first time Gail and I went to L.A. And, uh, and we had, uh, for some reason, there had, oh, I think it was, uh, there had been a special on TV about uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And it had shown uh, all the uh, prostitutes and the pimps and everything and the drug pushers and all this up and down. So we were going to get to see this. And uh, there was a, uh, uh, a friend of ours who was driving us around and we were hanging out the door looking uh, for uh, either a prostitute or a pimp because we were on and we would never seen one. You know, we'd come from... And, uh, and so finally we saw one. There was this magnificent man who was standing on the car and he was dressed completely in white and he had on these fancy white shoes and he had on this almost looked almost like a Stetson white hat and was a little bit cocked and so forth and he said a pimp a pimp and uh, and the guy said where and so we point out he, he said look across the street you see that hospital he's an orderly <laughs> okay 
So we just noticed this. It's perfectly all right. The only only uh, people that I know that are immune to this are uh, little children, and they, that's because we dress them. Uh, but as soon as they start picking things out for themselves, then, of course, uh, there's this what should I look like, what should I project. And it would be a mistake indeed to get caught up in that. And this is many one of the many side roads that we can get caught up in is trying to enhance our appearance, trying to refine our appearance. So what is the rule? Your appearance is not important. Do whatever allows you to not think of it. So you dress in a way in which you'll be peaceful and not self-conscious. You dress in a way in which you do not think it's going to make other people long for you or anxious about you. Or, And this doesn't require any analysis. This is just you just look at your clothes and you see what's peace, peaceful for you to put on. And you put it on. But below that is another costume. And that is the costume that we have with our language and what we say to people what we let them know about us, what words we use. So we actually wear certain words. And below that, there is a level that is deeper still. And that is the way we think of ourselves. The images we hold. And this is the real source of pain. So if you wish to concentrate on anything, concentrate on this. How am I identifying myself at this moment? And then don't do anything about it. Just notice it. Just see it. It may change. It may not change. But it will have nothing to do with behavior. But it will have a great deal to do with relinquishing the block to your awareness of what you actually are. And what are we? What we are can be said in words, but it has to be experienced before the words have any meaning. And this is why I've urged so often that if you have not begun to organize your life, to look at your life, to dissect your life, and to make the changes that are necessary to build for yourself a safe environment where your peace can grow, then this is what you must do. You must construct for a time a lifestyle, a day, a routine that will allow you to be peaceful. You must look very honestly at what is keeping you from being peaceful at the moment and do whatever you need to do to walk around this. This cannot be done in any sort of scattered way. It's, it's a process that goes something like this. You go through the day and you're very aware of your peace. 
you're aware of when it's there and you're aware of when it's not there. You're aware of what irritates you, what scares you, what brings on a sense of, of sort of floating anxiety. You're aware of anything that is not peace, that is not gentleness, that is not happiness, that is not love. You just note it. You say, ah, in this situation, I became anxious. In this situation, I felt lonely. You do nothing about it. You just see, ah. And as you go along, a pattern will begin to develop. So there, there are these there are these strings of, of chaos, these, these little ropes of discard that run through each of our lives. They are actually there, but they must be seen. So there is no isolated event in, the, in your life that causes you to be unhappy. And if you think it's because you walked in the store and, and the clerk was in a bad mood and that's why you're unhappy, then you have not yet seen what this is attached to because this is attached to a whole string of things that at the moment you cannot handle. At the moment, even though you wish you could handle, handle it, and even though you may say, well, if I'd meditated long enough this morning or if I were further along, I could handle it. The fact is you cannot handle it. And that's true of me and it's true of everyone that I know of that comes to this church. I don't know of anyone who comes to this church that, that this is not true of. There are people who have reached the point where they can be peaceful in any situation. There are not very many of them around, but there are a few. But notice that they do not get into just any situation, even though they can be peaceful in any situation. <laughs> You look at their lives, and there are many things that they simply are not doing. And so these strings of discard have to be seen. Now, once you have seen it, and you know clearly that this is now a pattern in your life, that this is a thing that keeps coming up day after day after day, you cannot yet handle this. This causes your peace to desert you. Then you sit down and you say, what do I want to do about this? And you do something, a little something. You take a step, and then another step, and then another step. But you take it because you have seen the importance of peace. Because you know that peace is your identity, even if you know it only intellectually. So let's talk about a few of the other things that we identify with that disturb our peace, that cause us to be happy, these sources of pain. Let me just run through a few of them so that possibly you'll be more conscious of them as you go through the day and possibly you would like to begin the practice of just noting them, noting how you feel when you think of yourself as a particular something. Now, it's very interesting. It's not that we stop doing this. The only time that we stop doing this is when we have totally relinquished the ego. What happens is 
that the ego continues doing this, but we're not listening to it any longer. We're not responding to it. Although at any moment, if we wish to, we can turn over and see what our ego is chattering about. This angry monkey up in the tree that we've talked about. This chatter, 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 chatter. Now, there are many things that you're not responding to any longer that your ego chatters about. You're not doing anything about it because it says you feel such and such. You don't like this. Da, 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 da. And before, uh, you were just being pulled around like a puppet on a string. Now, there are a number of things that you're not being controlled by. You're not responding to. You're not saying, I have to do something about that. Oh, yes, that is the way I feel. Therefore, I must do something. So a number of these areas have been eliminated, but there's still, every once in a while, when your ego starts talking about a particular something, you do listen to it, you do identify with it, and you act. So what actually happens is, there will still be the chattering monkey, but you're now listening to your peace, the song of your heart. You're hearing this lovely, lovely song, and you're beginning to see it in everyone around you, in everything around you. This song, this anthem. And it's so peaceful and nothing is required of you. There's no prescribed behavior. And you love listening to it. And as you begin to get just the slightest hint of how happy it is to know even the merest reflection of the peace of God then these few places where you're still being jerked around by your ego will seem to become ten times sorer than they were before. They will really jolt you when they happen. Now you've become jealous. Now you've become angry. And this is a shock. And looking at it and seeing the pattern and not engaging in some scurrying around for solutions, but just a gentle looking, you'll then say, what do I want to do about this? Now, I personally am not at a place where I can go past illness through mental means. I can occasionally do this. I can occasionally see I am deciding to get sick. Every once in a while I can notice, oh, I catch myself and I'm getting ready to decide to come down with the flu or decide to do this, decide to do that. Most of the time I'm not aware of this. But I am becoming a little bit more aware of this. So I'm not at the point where I can see that I'm coming down with an illness and simply pass it by through mental means alone. But I am at the point of realizing that when I'm sick, I cannot turn to God. I am preoccupied with my body. This is not true of everyone. Some people can only turn to God when they're very, very sick. And so with them, it would have to be what they think of as health. They have to see what's going on in that, that area. Now, I'd recently been exposed to the flu, two different kinds of flu. There were three people in our house who had had it and some had had it for two or three weeks and then I had to leave town and in four days I had to do three full day workshops and two evening presentations and I had to travel to more than one city to do this 
and I had been exposed to the flu, and I could feel my body beginning to come down with the flu. Now, before, I would have uh, made only the attempt to, to bypass this mentally, and I would have accepted all the invitations that had been set up to have lunch with so-and-so and meet with this group and meet with that group. But I now know that if I do that and I get sick, I'm not going to be as effective a presenter in a workshop or give as good a talk because I'm not feeling the peace of God. So the words will be somewhat hollow. And so when I got to my first location this last week, I told the people I, that, that my body was trying to come down with the flu. First of all, I had to be honest. This has been very embarrassing for me too. Here I was speaking uh, on healing through mental imagery. <laughs> I remember uh, the time I, I saw Earl Roberts on uh, Tom, Tom Snyder. And um, he was talking about all the times that he had gotten sick. And he was talking about these conversations that he would have with God about how embarrassing this was. God, this is so embarrassing. Here I am. I'm supposed to be a healer and I'm flat on my back in a hospital and so forth. Which is more important, the embarrassment or doing what is necessary so that we will be peaceful? So I said, my body's trying to come down with the flu. I know what to do that will give me the best chance of not coming down the flu. This is what I have to have. I have to go to my hotel room Every time there's a break, I have to go there immediately afterwards. I cannot have lunch with anybody. I'm going to get fruit, and I'm going to eat the fruit in my hotel room. I'm not going to take any meal outside. And I had to be very firm, and I said, furthermore, you've got to assign someone who will come in and bodily remove me because I cannot walk away from someone who's just started talking about one of these extremely personal and sensitive subjects. I just can't do that. So you're going to have to assign some awesome-looking somebody who's going to <laughs> come and grab me and bodily carry me out, and I will scream and say, oh, no, I've got to talk to this poor person. <laughs> and I did that. And I, and I got to my hotel room, and I, I, every chance I could, I... I rested. If I couldn't, if I didn't have enough time to go to sleep, I would just lie in my bed and I would just say some pleasant uh, uh, mantra or something to myself. And it was very interesting. It was the first time I saw that if I decided to walk around an illness, it was possible. I'm not saying that I'm going to be able to do this in all cases in the future. But here clearly, my body was trying to get sick. I could not pass it by through mental means alone, although I did use mental means to help, to augment, to supplement. But I did this, and the flu would come, and it would go away, and it would come, it would go away, and finally it just it went away. And this was very encouraging to me. So what are some of these identities? Being sick, of course, is one of them. I am a sick person. We have a certain expression, we have a certain posture, you know, we have certain things we have to put in the bed with us. <laughs> used to be we need a teddy bear, now it's the Vicks and the sewing, and we have all this stuff. And everybody around us, because we are a sick person now, has to behave in a certain way. They're supposed to use only certain words in talking to us, and, and there's, there's certain things they're supposed to do for us. You see, the whole world now 
Because we are this thing, now the world has to conform to that. So that doesn't mean you avoid any of that. You do take the VIX to bed with you and all that, if that will help, if that will help you get through this more peacefully, more easily. I was in a restaurant, uh, well, we were, we were this, uh, maybe it was yesterday morning, uh, and there was, <laughs> there was a, a man who came in the restaurant, um, and he is very, if you saw him, he, you would immediately identify him with uh, the uh, natural foods health uh, movement in this city. And uh, there was a uh, table over here, and there were two people waiting for him to sit down at the table. He walked in. He almost got the table. He said, first the cigarette. And he uh, walked around, and he went over, and he got some matches. Now, this is a very common identification. I am a need. I am a need. I am, I am a need for a cigarette. So we turn into a person who needs a cigarette. The person who needs a cigarette has to behave in a certain way. They can't walk toward the table. They have to walk toward the matches. They can't say anything. Even though they've been greeted, they can't even say hello. First, the cigarette. This is a, we all do this in some way. And then the same person. Um, I spend a lot of time listening to the next, the next table. Never said... <laughs> If you ever see Gail and me in a restaurant, you know not to sit close to us because we're <laughs> So the next thing that he noticed was, this thing that, that, that the, uh, the waitress told him that they did not have the croissant. He wanted the croissant for breakfast. So he was then trying to pick something beside the croissant, and he would pick it and he'd say, that's be, but it, gosh, the croissant would be so good. It's really a shame that you don't have the croissant. This went on for about five minutes. There's nothing anybody could do about it. But you are now a person who doesn't need a cigarette. They need a croissant. <laughs> now, you see, everything now, every conversation, what you hear that's on the menu is filtered through, oh, but I need a croissant. This it doesn't include a croissant. And therefore, you have to talk in a certain way. You have to feel a certain way and so forth. In AA, there's a wonderful expression called HALT, H-A-L-T. And so in this first thing that we're talking about, our identification with our bodily needs, this is a real good one to remember, H-A-L-T. That means hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Now in AA, if you are hungry, or if you are angry or lonely or tired, if you're any of those things, halt. You're, you're supposed to stop if you notice and do something about it immediately. Because in AA, it's recognized that if you don't do something about one of those bodily needs, you will then turn into a bodily need. And you will, of course, need alcohol. And so you take care of the need. You do something, and you do it instantly. You halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Those are three very, very good ones. And that is a good rule for anyone if you want the peace of God. You will not have the peace of God if you identify with your hunger, your anger, your loneliness, or your tiredness. So when you notice those, stop and see if there's not something you can do about it. 
It's all right to lie down at weird times during the day. If this will bring about peace, if this will help you get back to your walk toward God. Another identification is opinions, issues, rights. People literally identify with their opinions. Last uh, time I spoke here, well, I missed last uh, Sunday, as you know, and uh, but the time before when I when I last spoke here, I used a buzzword. Now, I thought I'd learned that lesson, but I used it anyway. Now the same thing happens that happens every time that I use a buzzword, and so now I hope I have learned this lesson because this happens every time. I'm not going to repeat the buzzword. <laughs> Well, let's say, let's say it was uh, jumping out of a cake. All right, we'll just say that's a buzzword, and all you have to do is say this, and people's egos start buzzing, jumping out of a cake. All right, so uh, let's say that I talked a total of four minutes on this subject, and let's say for two minutes I talked about uh, that the real problem, the, the, the reason that this was a shame that people jumped out of cakes wasn't because they weren't dressed, but because of the sugar. You know, you, this is awful. You, here you are. I mean, you, you, you might actually get sugar on people as you jump out of the cake, you see. Let's say that's what I'd said. Sermon's over. Walk outside. There's a little group over there uh, who are buzzing. My fault. They're still buzzing about the thing. I used it early in the, in the talk and... They were still buzzing about it. So one of them came over and said, of course you realize such an, it's, not the, it's not the dress. It, it's not the state of undress. It is the sugar. That is the real issue. This is what you failed to say. Now, of course, it is what I spent half the time saying, and, uh, but it wasn't that person's fault at all. It was my fault for having used the buzzword. People identify with certain issues, and you merely mention the issue and that's all they can think about. So I knew that these people probably hadn't heard a single word I'd said after I used that buzzword. And beside that, they didn't even hear what I said about the buzzword. And just to be sure, I went back and listened to the tape. And sure enough, I had said precisely what the person said I hadn't said for half the time I talked about it. Now, this has happened every single time I've used a buzzword. Someone comes up and tells me what I said. This is not their fault. It is my fault. For using a buzz buzzword. This is why A Course in Miracles puts emphasis on not being controversial. A Course in Miracles speaks of the whole subject of reincarnation, but it never uses the word reincarnation. You can speak of any issue and on any issue without using the thing that sets the ego to buzzing. And this is a good thing to know, that people identify with their opinions, that we identify with our opinions, that we coach them to us, that we nurture them, that we think an opinion on a particular issue is more important than an opinion on another issue. And we have certain issues that we think it's very important to have opinions on. And this is nonsense. We're taking something out of context. We don't have to charge 
our opinions, and we do not have to identify ourselves with a person who has a particular opinion. If we had amnesia, we wouldn't even know we were a person who had a particular opinion. I'll mention a few others. We identify with goals. Getting in shape. That's a goal that people set. Now you're a person who, who has to get in shape. Now everything will conform to this. Owning your own business. Now you're a person. Now see, as soon as we shift into one of these things, then we start acting in ways that we probably wouldn't act in other circumstances. So now you're going to get your own business. Now you think you've got to now act like a business person and you've got to be practical. And so you've got to be very hard-nosed and working out the lease to the place and all this stuff. And you're acting in a way that you don't even believe people ought to act, but you think you've got to act that way because now you are a person who has to have his or her own business. So a goal that requires the future locks us into pain. We have to proceed in a certain way. Roles. People identify with their roles. I was uh, having a discussion with a uh, newspaper reporter a few years back, and she was talking about a particular woman in the city who was known as, uh, let's say, uh, Mrs. Uh, Ralph Edwards. It wasn't Mrs. Ralph Edwards, and there is no Mrs. Ralph Edwards as far as I know. There is, excuse me, Mrs. Ralph Edwards. <laughs> and at the office she had brought up, does anyone know this woman's, very, very prominent woman, does anyone know this woman's first name? No one in the office knew this. It was always Mrs. Ralph Edwards. And so she called the woman and said, what is your first name? And the woman refused to give her her first name. This is a role, identification. We all do this in some way. I am a parent. I am a housewife. I am what, whatever it is. We identify with our history. I am an ex-druggie. I am an ex-smoker. An ex-smoker has to act a certain way around other smokers, right? It's a whole role. So don't be a farmer anything. Farmer school teacher kills 35. You've seen headlines like that. You know? <laughs> a man came up to me uh, a few days ago and said, I am, we'll call her Mary Jane's ex-husband. Mary Jane's ex-husband. This is an identity, you see. Now we're identified. Possessions. We identify. How many times has someone, have you walked in someone's door and they said, Come here and see this? And they take you off to see something. See the new whatever it is, word processors, and new whatever it is. Um, I, I was in a house recently and someone said, uh, Come see my snuff bottle collection. There's a new snuff bottle collection. And so we spend a long time looking at that. It's possible to identify. And we do, in fact, identify with a new something we've just bought. We buy this new suit or dress or whatever it may be, and now we are a person who feels that way. So the, the dress carries with it, or the suit carries with it, an image, and we must therefore be that way. We get in a car that is quite different than the car we're usually driving, and we feel a certain way as we drive the car. 
All we're talking about now is this: what the ego does during the day. It switches identities all through the day. Anything but the peace of God. Anything but what you are. I am now a person who owns a soul. People think I own this. I remember my uh, aunt, when I was a teenager, uh, lent me uh, her Jaguar. And at that time, you couldn't get a Jaguar in this country. She had had this brought over. And I was now the owner of a Jaguar. Not really, but I knew people thought I was. <laughs> you see. <clears throat> to be in a hurry, to be tense, is to assume a particular identity. You are now a person who has to get such and such done. On our street, we have someone that we refer to as the perfectly mad masseuse. <laughs> now, the perfectly mad masseuse drives a VW bus on two wheels. Never, if you see it, on all four wheels. <laughs> and you can imagine that this individual probably uh, just is very peaceful when they're giving a massage and everything. And then they quit the massage, and now they get in their VW bus. <coughs> and, and now, I don't know what it is. It's the Indy 500 or something. This is, uh, we identify not only with our illnesses, but with our disabilities. I am a person with a certain disability. I am a person with a certain loss. I've had this loss in my life. We tell people about the loss, that we act in a certain way because we have had this loss. For example, if a part of the body is missing, the ego is concerned about how to display it, how to display the loss. This is unavoidable. Egos are concerned about how to display it if you've got it and how to display it if you don't have it. So I recently saw a woman who decided to go from wearing an eye patch to not wearing an eye patch. And this is all the ego can offer. Do you wear the eye patch or don't wear, wear the eye patch? And she had decided she would be more real if she didn't wear the eye patch. And of course, that's all you can see without, this is all the person can hold on when the eye patch is off. So the chances are that this did not make her any more peaceful. The answer doesn't lie. That's so, in mentioning all these things, nothing that I've mentioned should be avoided. This is because we're all doing these things in some form. We display, we display our, uh, with men, uh, especially men display their loss of hair. I, I'm a very imaginative comber. The way I comb my hair is quite imaginative. And uh, no one can tell uh, unless the wind blows very hard. <laughs> so it has to be done, you see. You have to display your hair a certain way if you've got it, and you've got to display a certain way if you don't have it. There's, of course, talents virtues. These sometimes we think are different. They are not different. And we identify, we think we have, we are in possession of certain virtues and that we are not in possession of others. If that's the case, you're not in possession of anything because it, a true virtue includes it all. It includes all the peace and all the love and all the gentleness if it's true humility. And finally, we identify with our problems. Let me say what I've said here before. This is something that can be easily misunderstood. 
But once it's seen, there's nothing that will bring such relief to you than seeing this one fact. That nothing is ever solved. You cannot solve anything. You cannot solve how to get your child to eat properly. That will never be solved. The child will never eat perfectly properly. It will never happen. You will never solve time. Being on time. Someone else being on time. Having enough time. Running out of time. The next time you see you are running out of time, say to yourself, I will never solve running out of time. I will never solve people being on time. This will never, ever be solved. There will always be people. If we could see, for example, that we will never solve people being on time, we would not be angry because someone wasn't on time. It's because we think it's somehow solvable. And that if we can just give a stern lecture to everyone who is late, we will eventually clean this world up. (laughs) Restaurant food. Never be solved. (laughs) We're out of it. Never come a time when you will not hear that. When you go into a store or something, they will always be out of it. It's a problem you will not solve. Getting the right seat. Why don't they make things like they used to? Never be solved. They are making them, and what they're doing is they're making them for less money, and so it's just something else is being emphasized. So, of course, now there's everything has some cheap plastic part. We've all noticed it, but it sells for a little less than it would if it had the metal part. This is not going to be solved. Highway signs and litter and being first in line and everything you can think of. Whenever you notice one of these things, just say, this will never be solved. Now, having said that, nothing will ever be solved. There is another side to this, the happy side. Anything can be solved temporarily. And that's where our peace lies. Our peace lies in the discovery that the temporary solution has value. That quick and easy are not profane words. Anything can be solved temporarily. And what is the advantage of that? It has all the advantage in the world because it is only now, and it will never be anything else but now, and it will never be anything but a temporary something. And so it is the temporary in the sense that it concerns itself to now. The ego calls it temporary. It's actually eternal. It is the temporary solution that allows us to move forward. So you ask yourself, what can I do about this now that would make me more peaceful? Would it be more peaceful for me to put the menu down, walk out of the restaurant, and say, oh, I think my house is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Or would it be more peaceful to uh, go ahead and eat the meal? You just close your eyes, or don't close your eyes. (laughs) You just say, what's more peaceful? 
Because peace is our goal. Peace is our identity. Peace is what we are. But we've got to know it. We've got to experience it. We've got to feel it. It's got to cover everything eventually. It is a luxurious goal, this peace. It's so prized. But in the beginning, you won't know that. You've got to just think it or hope it or trust it and begin walking in that direction. Now here is the key to having peace. You make peace your most important goal. You set it as your priority when you wake up in the morning. You renew this commitment as you go through the day. You say, I do it only for peace. I do only what I think will give me the best opportunity for peace. Not perfect peace, but a little more peace. I say the words, I wear the clothes, I eat the foods, I have the relationships, I do the things that I think will allow me to keep my mind stayed on God. To keep the presence of God in my mind. To maintain my connection. To maintain my identity. To keep my walk in progress. To not get stalled. You set peace as your priority. You say it's the most important thing I have to do. It makes no difference what I do today. It makes all the difference in the world that I do it with peace. What can I do with the most peace? That will determine what I do. If I can do it with more peace, I do this. If I can do this other thing with more peace, that's what I do. And the second part is you set no second goal. This is what destroys the peace. We think we can have peace and be on time. We can have peace and we can attack the, uh, the owner of the restaurant a little bit. <laughs> the child will always have a dirty nose. Well, when they're 40, they won't have a dirty nose. Well, when they're 70... Not only will they not have, not only will they, well, they won't have a dirty nose and they won't have dirty ears, which is such a concern to us. And then it all cleared up at 40, but at 70, little hairs start growing out of the nose and out of the undetected, little undetected hairs start growing out of the nose and out of the ears. Isn't this right? You see, it's not solved. Just changes. So you just look at, well, it's not solved. The dirty ear problem won't be solved. The dirty nose problem will not be solved. But I can have peace now. Maybe peace is wiping your child's nose. Maybe peace is not pointing out to the 70-year-old person that, they, that they're not snipping the hairs off anymore. You've, you're, you've neglected to do this. Maybe peace is to not mention that. Maybe we say, well, that's not important. It's not important. So in one case, you mention it. In another case, you don't mention it. What determines it? Peace. What will make me more peaceful? Please close your eyes and say these words in your heart with me. I have no identity but love. Just say them uh, silently uh, to yourself. I have no identity but love. I have no identity but peace. 
I have no life but gentleness. I don't want to know anything about myself except love, except peace, except gentleness. Love made me love. Peace made me peace. And harmlessness itself made me totally harmless. I am love. I am peace. I am gentleness. I remember nothing else about myself except love and peace and gentleness. And the future holds nothing except love and peace and gentleness. And in God, which is love and peace and gentleness. I live and move and have my being.